Today's scripture reading comes from Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's a privilege to be here with you again this morning and worship through God's word. Let's take just a moment and pray and ask for his presence as we seek him through his word. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We need you. We need your presence. We need your help as we look at your word, as we study your word, as we pray through your word together. We, um, we need you. We need the gospel. We need you, Jesus. We need your Holy Spirit to make us new. We ask that you would reveal more of your glory, your greatness, and your love to us this morning as we um, seek you together through your word. Be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, so we are in a series entitled, How to Live Right When Things Go Wrong. Uh, You know, one of the privileges that I have as a pastor is to get to talk to many of you uh, in the sort of the thick and thin of your lives. So I not only get to see what goes well, but I also get uh, the vantage point of seeing what happens when things go wrong for you. And so um, what does gospel mean to that? What does the gospel mean to life when things go wrong? How do we take the good news of the gospel and actually have it be good news to us in the midst of suffering, in the weight of circumstances that feel out of control and undoing and threatening? So we're looking at that. We're also... um, looking at that through our home meetings, and we're going to finish up our year in our home meetings together, looking at this very uh, passage, and so we follow along in our home meetings with the passages that we use here on Sunday. Um, The first in the series, we looked at Jesus being our only asset, and how all of the other things we would consider valuable, consider important to who we are and our identities, are actually liabilities in comparison with him. And so it's important to see him as our only asset, And uh, also the upward call of God in Christ Jesus to the new heavens and the new earth, that there's there's a finish line that is not just merely heaven, but a transformed creation, an urban... Uh, place where we, with many nations, bring in the glories that God has given us and respond to him in eternity without the weight of sin and guilt and shame and death upon our shoulders. Jesus was taken and he's going to make all things new. We also looked at, uh, in the second in our series, we looked at our trials and troubles and that they're like a lathe. They're like a lathe that God uses to transform us, helping us to realign our purposes with God's and show us ways to draw closer to him. Last week, what we looked at was our responses to the difficulties of life and the fact that those responses, the responses we have, show our need for the transformation that's found through relationship with God and the gospel. And so that brings us to this week. And what we're going to look at is something very profound and very important. If you're going to make it through with hope under the difficulties you face, 
And the thing that we're going to look at is the underlying idols of our hearts. The need to be dealt, they need to be dealt with in the gospel if we're going to grow spiritually. And we're going to look at just a couple of things. We're going to look at the nature of idolatry. We're going to see in 3 and 4 that it's active. And in, in verse 4 that it's double-minded. And in, verses, in verse 5 that it's alienated and all-consuming. So we're going to look at the nature of idolatry. And then we're also going to look for the cure for idolatry. We see in verse 4 that the Lord's word is there. And we see in verse 5 that the Lord's love is there. That I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel. So, let's take a look. The thing about idolatry, and especially going back to Ezekiel, where there were uh, real and present uh, communities, other nations... They were competing for Israel's affection that used actual carved idols, actual made idols, as a part of their worship ritual. And, uh, and so part of, the, part of going back to this ancient Near Eastern text is to try to understand, well, what's that like for us? And so what I'm going to do is spend some initial time just building a bridge from us to them and what idolatry means. We're going to take a look a little bit at a biblical theology, if it, as it were, of idolatry and how that penetrates right into the New Testament as a chief concern for us growing spiritually. And then we'll unpack some of the text as we talked about and what it means. So the entire story of redemption can be seen as a struggle between true faith and idolatry. Look at creation. Look at creation. There's idolatry there. Men and women were created to do what? One, worship and serve God, and two, to rule over all of the creation in God's name. You can see this in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. But what happened? Humanity fell into sin. And Paul describes that fall into sin, interestingly enough, in Romans as idolatry. Romans 1, 21 through 25, he says that we refuse to give glory to God. In other words, to make him the most important thing. And instead, chose certain parts of creation chose certain parts of creation to glorify instead of God. Paul wrote, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Now this is a complete reversal, Paul is saying, with a created order. Humanity came instead through sin to worship and serve things God created. And so what happened is that those created things began to, to rule over humanity. Those created things began to rule over. So Paul points back to the beginning, says idolatry was right there, right at the fall. The law, the Ten Commandments, it's against idols, right? What's the great sin of the period of redemptive history for Moses and God's people? Making of the golden calf. They had been rescued and delivered, and yet they made an idol for themselves. You can find that story in Exodus 32. The Ten Commandments' first two and most basic laws, one-fifth of all of God's law to humanity, are against idolatry. Are against idolatry. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments prohibits worshiping other gods. And the second commandment prohibits worshiping God idolatrously. So idolatry sums up all that God's law is against. Idolatry sums up all that God's law is against. 
Also, the Psalms. We said uh, in one of our earlier, uh, in this series, that the Psalms were the prayer book of the uh, early people of God, that they would use the songs to sing and worship to him. They would sing it, you know, we use the overhead and sing familiar hymns. Well, worship for, for many, 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 many centuries was through the, the hymn book of God, which was the Psalter. And so the Psalms, we also find praying against idolatry. In the Psalms, the adoration of the people is not only towards God, but it's against idols. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says this, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol. So we're seeing this theme of idolatry developing throughout redemptive history. The prophets have a polemic against idols. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel wrote extremely heavily against the worship of idols, which is where we find ourselves today. Idols create an incredible spiritual blindness, and it involves denial of how important they are uh, to us, and it denies their effects in our lives. And so we see that progression of idols that, that the Old Testament talks about right into the New Testament. Do you know that in John 5.21... John writes, keep yourselves, beloved, from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. And John uses the term idol to summarize all that he had been saying in his letter about living in the light, holiness, and living in love, and living in truth. And one of the most fascinating places, and we'll wrap up the the sort of overview, the redemptive historical overview with this, is Paul's letter to the Galatian church about falling back into idolatry. In Galatians 4, 8 and 9, Paul was writing to a group of people who did worship actual idols, much like our men in, uh, on the pages of Ezekiel's letter. They did. They worshiped actual idols and warns them not to fall back into idolatry. Now, it's easy to read Galatians and think, oh, Paul means don't go back to that particular idol worship, worshiping other gods or worshiping idols from other religions, worship the true God. But then Paul says something very fascinating. The amazing thing is that the danger in Galatians is following those who are telling them to be circumcised and who are trying to lure them into a biblical moralism and clouding their understanding of justification by faith alone. What Paul's saying is that whether you sacrifice to a statue or you seek merit, you seek to merit heaven through conscientious biblical morality, you are setting up something besides God as your ultimate hope and it will enslave you. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about the connection of idolatry in today as we go along, but do you see the thread? Do you see the thread in redemptive biblical history as it unfolds? The Bible does not consider idolatry to be one sin among many. You have to understand that. It's not one sin among many. It's not now very rare and only seen in some very old cultures around the world. It's not like that. Rather, the only alternative to true, full, living faith in the living God, the only alternative to that is idolatry. The bottom line is that we're always worshiping something. There's no alternative. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping an idol. There's always a reason for sin. Under our sins are our idolatrous desires. Okay, so that's the overview, but let's take a moment from our passage and look at the nature of idolatry. Verses 3 and 4 say this, that it's an act of intimacy of the heart. 
It's an active intimacy of the heart. These men have taken their idols, Ezekiel says, into their hearts, the Lord says to Ezekiel, and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. They're taking their idols into their hearts. What does that mean? What does that mean? It shows you that there's some depth to what the Lord is warning the elders and Ezekiel about, right? Here's one uh, person, one of my seminary professors, David Powelson, wrote this following uh, clip to help us understand this a little bit better. He says, if idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, I think that's a great uh, definition, by the way. Remember that. Idolatry is, in the Old Testament, is the sort of the, the summary statement, the summary word that represents our drift from God, our drift from God. He writes, then lust, or inordinate desire, and the Greek word is epithumiae, is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for that same drift. And he, he lists various passages uh, and times where that drift is referred to in that word, in that summary statement by Paul and Peter and John and James, in Galatians and Ephesians and Peter and John and James, where epithumiae is the catch-all, the catch-all word for what's wrong with us. It's a, striking, it's a striking sort of continuity between the two. He goes on to write, The tenth commandment against coveting, which is idolatrous, or inordinate desire for something, also makes sin psychodynamic. David's a counselor, so you've got to check with him in that. Also makes sin psychodynamic. It lays bare the grasping and demanding nature of the human heart, as Paul powerfully describes in Romans 7. The New Testament emerges the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate life-ruling desires for lust, demandingness, craving, and yearning. They're specifically termed idolatry. Epithumiae. David Pallison explains to us how idolatry moves us to disobedience and sin. He says that unless we believe the gospel and look to the Lord Jesus for our salvation, we will look to some idol. We will look to some idol. And idolatry always leads us to over-desires. Example, if we believe that we're only going to be significant in life if we make a lot of money, if we believe that, if that's something that, that, that we hold true in our innermost being, we will be in the grip of an over-desire drivenness to succeed in our work to make it happen. You see? So, I want to talk about the act of intimacy of before their face. The Lord says to Ezekiel, they've set these up, these idols, before their face. What does it mean? Now, this is to those of you who are in love. Right? If someone is before your face and you're intimate and you're close to them and you can see the color of their eyes and you can hear them breathe and you can notice all the tiny expressions and adjustments they make in their face and when they're close enough you can smell what they smell like and when you kiss them you can taste them. It's intimate. It's warm and fuzzy, right? These are the things that the great love stories are made of. That kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness, that kind of face-to-faceness. Now imagine that same person, the one that you envisioned in your mind. Imagine that same person's face close to another, 
lover instead. Good feeling's gone, right? The reality is, this is exactly the kind of thing that happens when you take an idol into your heart before your face. Before your face. It becomes a stumbling block to you and you cannot see your true lover's, the Lord's face. You cannot see your true lover's face when you're facing another with the intimacy that should be reserved for him alone. That's what the Lord is talking about. It's an act of intimacy. It's also double-minded. In verse 4, it says, And yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with a multitude of his idols. So here we have elders in God's people who are coming with a multitude of idols, and yet they're trying to come and seek the Lord and worship him too. And the Lord's saying, I can't do that. I'm going to have to answer you according to my word. As the prophet uh, Ezekiel would have been consulted by the early exiles for a message from God, it seems that his status was such that even the elders of Israel came to him to inquire of the Lord. You see that also in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, when they're coming for an oracle, to hear an oracle from the Lord. And there's no indication that the elders did not have a belief in the God of Israel. Remember, there's no indication that they did not have a belief in the God of Israel. Their problem was that they also had other gods. No one can serve two or more masters. Jesus said so in Matthew 6. You remember? There can only be one. And so they came seeking God with a multitude of idols in place, but the Lord said that cannot be. Now, I hung around Dr. Keller for many years at Redeemer in New York and Manhattan, and uh, here are some of the examples that he gave of the way that idolatry transfers to our current day and age in our culture. These are just some examples. Begin to understand and see and uncover the examples in your own life as you listen. Let it be cues for you that you might search them out and overturn them with the Lord's help. Relativism. Tim writes, Relativism makes an idol out of one's own individual conscious Uh, and conscience and inner feelings. When a society teaches people, you alone can determine what is right or wrong for you as long as you don't steal others' freedom to have the same choice, then it has made choice an absolute value and the feelings the heart of a God. Empiricism makes an idol out of nature and scientific investigation. It insists absolutely everything has a natural scientific cause. Thus it believes science has an answer for everything and will open doors. Here's one that may be challenging for you. Capitalism makes an idol of the market. When a society comes to believe that the most or all of our problems will be solved by free market competition, it leads people to worship success, personal freedom, and the almighty individual. Today, even advocates of the free market recognize the cultural contradictions of capitalism, namely that capitalism and consumerism undermine the very virtues of self-control and responsibility that gave it rise. Or socialism, as a last example, makes an idol out of the state. It occurs when a culture teaches that our main problems are at root, only social, not spiritual and moral. This view relies overly or exclusively on government solutions to re-engineer society. Christians understand that our problems are rooted in sin which affects both social systems and individual hearts and will make an idol neither out of government nor of private individual initiative. When we rely upon any of those things or any of the things that they made you think of in your life or any other person, 
for meaning. And yet you try to seek God too, you're being double-minded. And the Lord doesn't have that. He won't have it. He seeks to do away with that in you. And lastly, the, uh, it's alienated. Verse 5, and, uh, we find that this kind of idolatry is alienated. Alienating, and it's all-consuming. Alienating first, who are estranged from me through their idols, the Lord says. Our idolatry estranges us from the one who loves us. Do you know that your idols are grievous to Jesus? They're grievous to him. They're grievous to God. Idols are ultimately cruel to the heart of the one who offers you so much at such a huge cost. But idols are also all-consuming. They came with multitudes of their idols. Idols create delusions through which we see everything, including our relationship with God. They appear more wonderful than they really are. They lead us to deny their hold on us. They enslave and they will never be satisfied. And they multiply. And they work together in clusters in our lives. There's real danger in idolatry, not just for the elders that the Lord was talking to through Ezekiel, but through, for us. There's real danger So how, if that's why we need to deal with the underlying idols of our heart, how do we do it? How do we do it? What does the gospel mean to that for us? There's a cure for idolatry. We see it in verses 4 and 5. The Lord's word and the Lord's love. The Lord says, I will answer. And he says that he's going to answer that he may lay hold of their hearts. Friends, do you know that there is one who kept his heart from idols? And he kept his heart from idols perfectly. And he kept his hearts from idols wholly. Jesus' heart was truly captured by God so that your heart could be recaptured by him through faith in his gospel. One commentator put it this way. said, Ezekiel's vision of the restoration, which we didn't read about today, but Ezekiel goes on to talk about. Ezekiel's vision of the restoration includes a glorious temple. He foresaw, he foresaw a time when the presence of God in the midst of his people was so overwhelming that under the form of a vision he could only describe it in the terms of size and splendor. John writes that when Jesus came and templed in our midst, we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus was the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the author of Hebrews writes. There is no historical evidence that the visible cloud of God's glory ever came to the second temple as it had to the tabernacle in Solomon's temple. God's glory came to the second temple when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Paul writes in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have not been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from him by the wrath of God? Do you hear that? Your idolatry cannot ensnare you and keep you from his love. How much more have we died to the wrath of God through Jesus' gospel? You are called to tremendous joy and encouragement in this. When you're facing trials, this should be your hope. This should be your joy. This should be the thing that lifts you up and gives your spirits, makes your spirit soar. What have you turned, what you have turned from when you engage in idolatry is his beauty. You've turned from his beauty and his love and the joy that's in him. 
He offers you what you've been seeking elsewhere. He awaits you. He stands at the door knocking, John said in Revelation 3.20. He seeks a far deeper connection and intimacy with you than he has previously had. You were called, friends, you were called, especially when you were suffering. You were called to an appreciation, a rejoicing, a resting in what Jesus has done and offers that will replace your idol that will replace it. You've got to overturn it. You've got to turn from it. And you've got to turn to him who loves you. Knowledge of Christ. More than an intellectual exercise. John Calvin put it this way, and this might surprise you. He writes, It is not apprehended, the knowledge of Christ, by the understanding and memory alone, as other disciplines are, but it is received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds a seat and resting place in the inmost affection of the heart, it must enter our heart and pass into our daily living and so transform us into itself that it may not be unfruitful for us. Its efficacy ought to penetrate the inmost affections of the heart, take its seat in the soul, and affect the whole man a hundred times more deeply. Let that target be set before our eyes at which we are to earnestly aim. Let that goal be appointed towards which we should strive and struggle. No one shall set out so inauspiciously as not daily to make some headway. John Calvin, not known as the most resplendent of feelers in the Christian of faith, but one of the most incredible thinkers. And yet he says, you know what? All of my thinking is for naught if Jesus doesn't reside in you or in me and transform me from the inside out from the heart out into life, combining with the truth that we have in the gospel and exploding in our inwardmost being and making the way that we live our lives together and for God and for the benefit of others around us and our neighbors, uh, transformed. You must learn that the Lord alone is to answer your struggle with idolatry and you must learn to rejoice in the particular things that Jesus brings that replaces your idol that you hold in your heart. Whatever they are. Now, a couple of examples. One of the things you need to know is that through him, you can deal with the underlying idols of your heart. And our failure to deal with those things, our failure to deal with the underlying of the idols of the heart is because we functionally reject what he did for us. You're not dealing with your idols because you're functionally rejecting what he did for us. You'll never be able to deal with your underlying idolatry if you first don't believe in, rest in, and rejoice in the one who lived without idolatry so that you could live in him. Your joy and confidence under trials won't be sufficient unless you see yourself perfect in God's eyes in Jesus. Remembering him frees our heart so that we can change like this. Some examples. If you struggle with temptation, let Jesus entice you with his life. Let Jesus entice you with his life rather than the things you're being enticed by. Rejoice in the gospel until you see his beauty. Are you looking at the gospel? Are you spending time with him daily? Are you, are you taking in his word? Are you chewing on it? Not just biting into it and swallowing it. Are you taking time to taste it? Let its savoriness uh, flow over your taste buds and warm your throat and belly as it enters. Are you doing that? Or if you struggle with anxiety, let Jesus comfort you with his care. 
Rejoice in the gospel until you're humbled enough to see that you don't know best. You don't know best, but he does. Rejoice in the gospel until you're humbled enough to see that you are and valued enough to see that he could not forget you. He will not forget you because of the testimony of the cross. If you struggle with anger and pride, let Jesus humble and soften you with his mercy. Rejoice in the gospel until you're that way. Ezekiel tells us in 5 and later in the same passage in verse 11 why it is so important to turn from our idols and turn towards him. The Lord's purpose in that, he says, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. That in verse 11, that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, declares the Lord. Friends, in Jesus, he's made a way for us to turn from our underlying idols and turn towards him. Will you turn? Will you turn? Turn from your idols and go to him now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now without pride, because Jesus had to take our place. He had to die for us. And without fear, because he did. And we come to you now boldly in humility because we have need of you and the good news of your gospel to us. And we lay hold of that through your empowering work of your Holy Spirit. And we seek to live our lives now as we go out into the world, into our week, as those who have been loved by you, our Lord and Savior, our faithful Jesus Christ. Be with us as we come to your table now, as we live life together, as we endeavor to live as becomes a follower of you. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.